So Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, I know you've enjoyed Pastor Hobbes's, um introduction uh, to this, uh, this great gospel. Uh, I want to remember that Luke is probably a few things that are kind of outstanding, and I think he mentioned them in his messages. Uh, Luke is probably a Gentile, as far as we can tell, and uh, he writes... Uh, the greatest portion of the New Testament in Luke and Acts. Um, he's a historian, it, it appears, and he has a very pointed purpose in the Gospel of Luke in particular, and I think it's carried over into the book of Acts. And that is to, uh, if we look there at Luke, Luke chapter 1, we always want to frame our understanding of, of the Gospel of Luke. Um, let me get back there here. Um, he says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were what? Eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Uh, so this is the task of Luke. Uh, he writes with Theophilus in mind, and obviously underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, his words are inerrant and infallible as he writes this history. So he's a historian unlike any other, and he wants you to know the exact truth uh, the exact truth, not some sort of a hodgepodge of truth or, or some kind of a combination of truth and half-truth, uh, but he wants you to know the exact truth. Uh, so uh, we want to be as exact as Luke wants us to be in our study here. Uh, so we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 20, and then we'll make the comments here that God has uh, laid on my heart for you. Uh, now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, Lysanias was tetrarch of Albanine, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of the Lord. Verse 7, so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, <clears throat> so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? 
And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, What about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John, as whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because all of the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod Herod also added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Our proposition tonight, if you're somebody who likes to take notes, or the statement that I believe that uh, there's a lot of things we could approach this passage, uh, uh, different angles, but the one we're going to look at tonight is this, that repentance is the key that unlocks the eyesight to see the salvation of God and to see the salvation of God specifically in the person of Jesus, the Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, we're familiar with that old adage, seeing is believing, right? I don't know if you've ever used that. If I see it, then I'll believe it. Seeing is believing. Well, in our passage tonight, Luke reports with the exactness he promised to Theophilus in chapter 1. The events reported here are historically verifiable, and that's important. The Gospels are written to help us understand that uh, Jesus is historically verifiable. He is located in time. This is the era of salvation that we live in. This is not what the nation of Israel enjoyed at all. Uh, They had a hope, a promise. We have promise fulfilled. So Luke uh, takes great pains to make sure uh, that we understand that this is a historically verifiable event. Luke reports with precision who the civil leaders are, who the religious leaders are, even making note of sort of its odd arrangement with two high priests, one sort of the puppet of the Roman uh, 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 imperial interests, and the other is probably the true high priest of the nation of Israel. He Uh, Very precise in that regard. Um, He also gives us uh, the prophetic context of the ministry of Jesus, a ministry of whom John the Baptist was to be a forerunner. So in Luke's era of salvation history, promise becomes fulfillment. Expectation becomes historic reality. And salvation becomes verifiable eyewitness sight accounts. So, beloved, be encouraged. 
Jesus fulfilled a portion of the prophetic witness literally. There is an unfulfilled portion of the prophetic witnesses that has yet to come, but mark it down. It will come with exactly the same amount of historic verifiability. <laughs> and it will come. So be encouraged. And that's not even my message tonight. That's just sort of a byproduct of how Luke treats the truth. Um, so we want to observe here tonight that John speaks as a prophet. He's a prophet. As we think of John, we, uh, there may be a lot of things that we could certainly apply to his ministry, but we must apply the idea that he is a prophet. Uh, Isaiah tells us that John speaks as, or speaks of John as a voice. It's a voice. You see that in verse number four. This is a, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. A voice. Revelation from God has always come through the voice, through propositions, through the English language, through things that could be heard. But now, along with the voice in Jesus, revelation comes from God in a manner that can be seen, that can be touched, that can be felt. This is a whole new era. This is a whole new prophetic reality. This is what John the Baptist, the prophet, singularly enjoys in terms of prophetic witness. He announces not just with his voice, but he says, behold, which means what? Stop and take a long, lingering look because you can see him. You can see him. And we look at Isaiah reckoning that in verse number 6. And all flesh will what? Will see the salvation of the Lord. This is the prophetic longing. They had heard and heard and heard and heard and heard. But oh, how they longed to see. Jesus came in a historically verifiable way, and they saw, and folks, the church is a company of people who hear and hear and hear and hear, and we too long to see. And mark it down, we will, with historic verifiability. And what a joy that is. So now revelation in Jesus would be seen. But how are we to see it? What is required in order to see it? Well, John lays that out for us. Repentance is the key that unlocks the eyesight to see the salvation of God in the person of Jesus. Um, so in the first section here, in verses 7 through 9, we're going to break this passage of Scripture up into three sections. Uh, after verses 1 through 6, sort of this prologue, this, this historic uh, witness to the reality of who John was and the, the, the time in which he found himself and the message that he was preaching, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and, and the identification of him as the one who Isaiah spoke of. So having gotten now all of that under our belt, we come now into John's interaction with the crowds, with the people. 
We see in verse 7, the crowds, verse 10, the crowds, and verse 15, the people. And uh, this is where salvation belongs, in and amongst the crowds, in and amongst the people. So in this first section, after Luke painstakingly sets the historical context, the crowd gathers in verses 7 through 9, and it, here, it is here that we take note, truths concerning repentance. So if this morning you are a discipler. Uh, you often, if you're going through the Foundations book, has to, have to deal with this concept of repentance. If you are truly born again this evening, you are somebody who has had to have understood this idea of repentance. Uh, repentance and faith is the witness of the New Testament. These are gifts from God, but there are things that we must understand. And so tonight we're going to look at aspects of repentance. And I want you to draw the circle around yourself. I want you to investigate your own heart and ask the question, have I truly repented? Uh, and perhaps as you're walking your disciple through an understanding of repentance, this would be a good passage of scripture that you can turn to and help them to understand a little bit more of the nuances of repentance. So the first truth about repentance is this. Repentance is the appropriate response to God's impending wrath. God's impending wrath. You know, it's true that certain realities naturally engender a certain response. The September 11 attacks, also referred to as 9-11, were a series of four coordinated terrorist attacks by Islamic terrorists um, on the morning of Tuesday, September 11, 2001. And many of you will never forget where you were, what you were doing when those attacks took place. At 8.46, between the hours of 8.46 and 10.28, these attacks un un unraveled in our country. Um, there were uh, 2,996 deaths uh, there were over 6,000 non-fatal injuries. And this event did some things that perhaps we had never really observed, those of you who are of my age, uh, but it galvanized this country for a short period of time and in sort of a proper response of patriotism. This event engendered a resolve to defend this nation against all threats. For many, it engendered dedicating a portion of their lives to wear the uniform of our armed forces and to serve our country. The attack engendered a whole new orientation of life. This is exactly what the wrath of God, through John's words to you and I tonight, needs to engender in our life in a very parallel way. <clears throat> John calls those who came to him, uh, we see that in verse number seven, a brood of vipers. Now this is not a compliment, all right? Uh, uh, the idea here is he had not personally called them out into the wilderness to flee the wrath of God. They, they certainly were seeking to flee the wrath of God. <clears throat> He was simply saying, my baptism has no power in and of itself to protect you from the wrath of God. 
So I don't want you to think in sort of chasing after me in the wilderness, there's some sort of magic in the water or magic in my voice. No, you brood of vipers. It's good that you seek to escape the wrath of God, but there's nothing in me that is capable of doing that. The wrath that they are seeking to avoid is perhaps the wrath of God over the nation of Israel for centuries. They have been in captivity, and and now they were under the heavy-handed imperialistic Roman regime. And they were longing to be set free. The intertestamental period is nothing if it's not filled with conflict and with Jews trying to free themselves from the Roman oppression. And so they come to John, hoping that somehow John will magically help them to escape from this God's wrath and throw off Roman oppression. And and John, like Jesus, has to correct their understanding. The metaphor here of snakes uh, is, 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 again... Uh, something that's, that's meant to stir them in relationship to the wrath of God. You brood of vipers, you, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Um, the metaphor, the idea here is, as snakes come out of their dens to an, avoid an oncoming brush fire, so the crowds were seeking to flee the wrath of God by coming to John and experiencing his baptism. John, however, saw through their motives. He, he understood their longing to be free from the wrath of God. Perhaps some of them were reckoning the ideas of the, the, uh, the, the, the prophecies of Daniel. They were thinking more in terms of the eschatological wrath of God, the end times and the, the amazing outpourings of God's wrath. They were familiar with some of these. Uh, Revelation uh, uh, chronicles them for us. Uh, the sixth seal, they said, the mount, to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. They would be familiar with that sort of prophetic uh, formula in that day, that great day. They were familiar that there was a component of that that was horrific, so horrific it was called the time of Jacob's trouble. This was the wrath that was filling their their understanding, and they longed to flee from it. Revelation 14, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Revelation 16, the seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. Revelation 19, he treads the wine presses of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. They were conscious of this. The day of the Lord verbiage was, was riddled throughout all of the prophetic witness, both the major and the minor prophets. And they feared the wrath of God. And we too do well to fear the wrath of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It's a disposition that understands that God is in absolute control of absolutely everything. And he sees everything I do. I am naked and open before him with whom I have to do. And what he sees is not always engendering his heart to joy and happiness. But to see the salvation of the Lord, how do we go from that condition to enjoying the salvation of the Lord? Well, the word repentance, John uses. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance, repentance. Uh, 
repentance in verse 8 bears a certain kind of fruit. Um, verse 8a, you see that there, therefore, uh, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In keeping with repentance. The word repent here uh, is, is from the Greek word metanao. It means to change one's mind. However, uh, this was more of a, a Greek idea, the changing of one mind. Uh, this was a very familiar concept in the Hebrew mind that it had more to do than just changing one's mind. It added to that the idea of changing one's whole point of view, changing one's orientation. And it was not until those who came seeking to flee the wrath of God who understood that they are, they, they are being called of John to change their whole orientation. Specifically, the change of that orientation will be to the Christ, the coming one, Jesus. That unless they did that, wrath would be their unenviable condition. So in summary, Luke sees repentance as a change of perspective that transforms a person's total thinking and approach to life. We see in verses 8b through 9 that repentance has no exemptions. Um, do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is, ready, is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Resent, repentance has no exemptions. There, there, there's no inside track. There's no inside track because of my pedigree, because I am a chosen among the, the nation of Israel. Therefore, this idea of, of, of that I'm about ready to uh, be confronted with, the, the person of the Lord Jesus himself and his authority, I am not exempt from hearing him and following him and changing the whole orientation of my life to what he has commanded me and being happy to do so. There's no special treatment. Every tree gets the same assessment. Indeed, the axe is laid at the root of the trees so that every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down. You see, Luke is very interested, not just necessarily in, in the nation of Israel. He writes to all men, to all people. In quoting Isaiah, he's the only one who quotes the concept that for all to see the salvation of God. He, he adds that passage or that portion in Isaiah chapter 40. He's writing to a Greek, a Gentile. And he's holding the Gentiles to the account, to the question of repentance. So repentance bears fruit. Repentance has no exemptions. True repentance comes in the face of powerful warning. There's no more powerful warning in all the universe than the wrath of God. All flesh knows God's wrath is imminent. We all know that. The Bible says that God has set eternity in the hearts of every man and woman. Their life is either pursued, resisting that idea, or hopefully pursuing, God, where is your salvation? But we all intuitively know that the wrath of God exists. 
All flesh knows that. God's wrath is inescapable. There is nowhere to flee from it. There is no inside track, no special treatment. The only thing to do is to deal with the cause of it. And this is John's essential message. We have to deal with the cause of it. And we're going to find in the coming Christ, the coming Messiah, Jesus himself, the one who will bear the very wrath of God in our behalf. But our part is to repent and believe. Our part is to recognize that our orientation is wholly unacceptable. We do not want to be quantified as a brood of vipers. Or just trying to sort of take Jesus on or, or, or kind of sort of change our life a little bit so that we can have a better life. No, this is a question of the concern of your eternity. This is the question of the concern of the day that you stand before God all on your own. That is the concern. That's the concern John has. That's the concern that Jesus has. And this, my friends, is the first concern for all those who will join Jesus in the kingdom to come. We have to settle this first, this first truth. So not only uh, uh, is repentance uh, uh, in, in the, uh, the proper response to severe warning, the second thing we see here is this truth. Repentance has profound implications for our everyday life. So, so this is the question of, well, what does true repentance look like? You know, the whole New Testament has books dedicated to the question of what kind of faith saves. We're instructed in the New Testament that even demons believe and tremble, but that belief certainly isn't a saving faith. That is a kind of faith, but it is not a kind of faith that saves. The whole book of James and 1 John are dedicated to the question of assurance of, of what kind of faith truly saves. We could say the same thing is true of repentance. What kind of repentance truly saves? Well, what does it look like when I've experienced it? What happens in my life? Well, what happens in your life is you joyfully take up the cause and the concern of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Your orientation your way of life is now joyfully submitted to the authority of Jesus. Whereas before, you refused to accept it. Now, in Jesus, having repented of that, putting your faith and trust in Jesus alone, you now joyfully embrace his authority. And you may not do it immediately all the time, but over time, your life progressively moves in that direction. And we see that's exactly what John is saying here. Repentance is not a moment in time reality. It's not just a moment in time reality. It instructs us every day. We see that in verse 10. The crowds come again. Uh, before, they, they just were going out to him. Now they're questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? If, we, or if we're these brood of vipers who have spurious motives, then what shall we do? What, what does repentance look like, John? And he says, well, repentance will grip your soul, this new orientation. When the king comes and you see him, it will all come very clear. And repentance uh, will be the appropriate response. Uh, we see here that, um, well, we'll just read it. It's pretty self-explanatory. And what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics 
is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors, again, this is Luke's interest in all men. Tax collectors were not, you know, an attractive group of people in the nation of Israel. And they came to be baptized. They, they sensed the fear of God and, and his wrath. And, and they said to him, Teacher, John, what shall we do? What does repentance look like in our life? And he said to him, When you've truly repented, you will, uh, by ellipsis, you will collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Instead of using your position as, a, as an advantage, self-centered advantage. And he said to them, then uh, um, soldiers came, verse 14, and they were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force. This is what repentance looks in your life if you're truly repented of sin. Or accuse anyone falsely and, and be content with your wages. So in our passage here, repentance on God's terms meant that excessive material things was now meant to share, not to be hoarded and multiplied and spent solely on your own self-interests. The very way you were to do your job on a day-to-day basis was radically changed by the reality of repentance in your life. If you're a tax collector, it changed how you collect the taxes. If you were a soldier, it changed, it changed how you did your soldiering. If you were somebody of wealth, it changed how you viewed your wealth and what you were going to do with it. It took on and controlled by God's grace your attitude. A sin-repenting attitude is generous. A sin-repenting attitude is ethical. A sin-repenting attitude doesn't steal, doesn't bear false witness, and doesn't covet. It longs to follow the authority, and now in Christ will have the ability to follow the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It micromanages us, if I could use that verbiage. And I know you hate to be micromanaged. So do I. You know what? A sin-repenting attitude, that's something that when I was nine years old, I repented of my sin. I realized in that moment that sin was my problem, that my orientation to myself was the issue. I was dead in that orientation, and I had no hope. I had to repent of that. And in that moment, Jesus buried in the depth of my soul a sin-repenting attitude for the rest of my life. So that I'm a learner. Those who have a sin-repenting attitude never stop learning. Know they have a desperate need to learn all the time. Sin-repenting attitude. Sin-repenting attitude. Seeing the salvation of God requires this kind of repentance. It restructures the very core of who we are. A sin-repenting attitude is my new reality, hopefully our new reality in Christ. 
It is with us every moment of the day. It informs how I view my stuff, how I live my life, and even what I'm doing at work when the boss isn't around. In our final section, the crowd is found in a state of expectation here. This is uh, verses 15, and uh, really through 20, we'll take it. They wonder, is John then the Christ? Is, is he the one to whom we owe allegiance, to whom we owe this repentance? Is he the one that we're to believe in? John had a marvelous opportunity in front of him. But repentance is exemplified by the humility of John. John essentially says this is ridiculous. Okay? And because he himself was a man who had repented and reoriented his life to this one called Jesus, by his example, by his humility, he gives us an amazing illustration of what repentance looks like in a life. True saving faith, true saving repentance, like in John, realizes that Christ Jesus is mightier than I. He's mightier than I. You see John saying that. And all were wondering in their hearts about John, verse 15, as to whether he is the Christ. John answered and said to all of them, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming is mightier than I. Jesus is mightier than I. This is the conviction of those who have repented. They measure themselves in might and they find none. There is nothing that I can do to produce salving or satisfying the wrath of God. I need somebody who is mightier than I. I have no might. I have no might. He goes on to say this. He says, essentially, Jesus, this one who is coming after me, the Christ, this historic man of Galilee who is walking our dusty streets, this one who is not just a mere mortal man, he is, he is also 100% divine. He's mightier than I, and he is God. And I am not. That's essentially what he's saying. He's going to baptize you with the third person of the Trinity. He commands the Trinity in that sense. I mean, wow. John is saying, all I do is dunk you in water. That's it. That's all I do. And uh, the idea, a little bit like, but not the same. as a baptism we do in the church. It's different. This is a baptism under repentance, right? So the symbol is that you would be all slopping wet with repentance. You would get out of that water with John, and everywhere you'd go, you'd slop water, and everybody would know you had repented. You had trusted G in that sense. And that was a, was a baptism of repentance. We have, we, have, we have a baptism that symbolizes that and so much more in the church, our union with Christ. It's, a, it's, a, it's that on, on, on hypersteroid because of the finished work 
of Jesus on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. And our baptism symbolizes our death with him, our burial with him, and our life with him. It's a baptism that's altogether different. But the idea of water is, is a beautiful picture. It goes into every nook and cranny. That's the idea. And this is what John was commanding these who are trying to flee the wrath of God to do. You are going to need to repent. And folks, to re you know, we, we repent in the face of the truth of the word of God. We have not seen Jesus. Some of us wish we could have lived when Jesus existed. And, 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 um, and even the, the, the New Testament writers confess the idea that, that, that blessed are those who have, who have not seen and yet believed. But to be in that context and to have just a human being figure coming before you and commanding you unto eternal life, it's a difficult thing. And, and, and this is what John is preparing the way for. He is, he is making smooth these paths. He's trying to help them understand this is the guy. And you must repent. You are, you've, you've got to change your whole orientation. The brood of vipers that had come, their orientation was to throw off Roman imperialism. And we see that right throughout the rest of the gospel witness. He's saying, no, that's all the wrong. That's all the wrong orientation. Smooth it out. Make it plain. I'm going to make it plain. You must repent. You must repent. Um, so Jesus is God. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We could talk a little bit about this baptism with Holy Spirit and fire. You can take the time to look that up. All that I ask you is to keep it to one baptism. All right? And you can kind of decide how you go from there. Don't come out of there with two baptisms on me, all right? So we won't talk about that tonight. We'll let you do that. Finally, then, in relationship to this idea that John exemplifies the humility that is at the core of true repentance in his confession, Jesus is mightier than I. Jesus is God, and I'm not. He says uh, that Jesus the Christ will be the absolute and final judge. He alone is the judge. Did you see that? how that's worded? Um, one is coming, verse, uh, where, where are we here? Verse 16, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork. This is not anybody else's winnowing fork. This man that you're about ready to meet and be introduced to, that, that you need to repent and, and, and put your faith and trust in, he is going to pick up a winnowing fork. It's in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And this is the wrath that you need to avoid. And your motives need to be the motive that Jesus wants you to have. He doesn't want you to have all the 
the, the confusion of felt need motives. No, we repent because he's mighty, because he's God, and because he's judge. And he may never, well, and obviously, he, Jesus himself will say, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden. But that's not John's witness. John is chopping down mountains. You know, he, he's clearing the way. He's, he's hacking through forests. And he's making it just dead on simple. And he's indicating that the issue is an issue of authority. And you're about to see it. You're about to be confronted with it. So in, in, in Luke's report of John the Baptist's ministry, we have sort of this, this, uh, uh, this helpful picture of what true repentance looks like. Uh, repenting and putting our faith in Jesus Christ has always been the requirement of being in the family of God, of having the wrath of God satisfied in our behalf. And it comes to the fore as Jesus steps onto the scene of human history in this new era of salvation history. And he is going to command the nation of Israel, he's going to command people everywhere to repent, to change their orientation, to, to, to put their whole life in the hands of Jesus because he's mighty, because he's God. And because he's the judge, you want to be on his side. In verses 18 through 20, John's voice soon fades, as every one of the prophets who were before him did. There will be some more interaction with John the Baptist, but John the Baptist's ministry essentially comes to a halt when he calls out Herod and Herodias and the illicit affair. Herodias counseled to ask for the head of John the Baptist and eventually she's given that. So the prophetic witness of John, who not only is a voice, but is one who sees the salvation of the Lord, it drifts off. Repentance is the key that unlocks the eyesight to see the salvation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This was the message of this great prophet. This was it. And it sort of sets the whole stage for anyone's interaction with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is foundational. This is exact. This is what Luke's saying is exact. We've got to start with the wrath of God. We've got to start with the desire to flee it. And if we're going to flee it, we must repent. And we must repent fundamentally because Jesus is mighty. Jesus is God. And Jesus is the judge. It's a powerful, powerful, simple, clear rifle shot the heart of salvation history. And it's given to us by John. Repentance and motive, mind and attitude. 
Repentance demands that we do away with any spurious motive, our intellectual pride, our arrogant heart. All of that must be exchanged for the authority and lordship of Jesus in our lives. Have you repented? Does your sin-repenting attitude impact your life every single day? It should. It should inform you. It should inform me. May God produce in us throughout our life a heart of repentance that began at salvation but growingly dominates us as the appropriate response to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our life and know this, that the property, and if we had time, we would look at it, but the property of, of, of faith and repentance, repentance and faith, is full assurance. The wrath of God has been appeased in the person of Jesus, who, by the way, is mightier than I, I confess that, who is my God and who is my judge. And I no longer fear that. I take great comfort and joy because I have repented and I put my faith and trust in him alone. So John, John, a simple man, a man called of God, a man who sets the scene for the ministry of Jesus Christ and really who sets the scene for this whole new era of salvation history, an era that we know so much about and are so richly uh, full of because we know what it means to be in Christ, but never forget that the first step is humble repentance, a complete reorientation. I am wrong. Jesus, you are right. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Uh, we thank you, Father, for uh, the joy of being freed from the wrath of God. And Lord, we remember what it was like when <clears throat> the warnings came some of us were under the sound of the, the, the preaching of hell, fire, and brimstone. And, and, and John supports that kind of preaching. And it's in that, that warning of the wrath of God that, that repentance is truly understood. Uh, so Lord, help us to keep that before our disciples when it's appropriate to help uh, us as we give the gospel to, to be reminded that, that fundamentally... This isn't about the felt needs of, of these whom we are trying to minister, but fundamentally it's to flee from the wrath of God to come. We can find refuge and rest in the work and person and authority of Jesus. So Lord, help us to remember that. And help it, Father, to, to as we are working out our relationships, working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, help us to to revisit, perhaps this week on a day-to-day -day basis, just the, the truth of God producing me uh, uh, that sin-repenting attitude. May, may, may the moment uh, sin becomes aware in me that, that I would just be so sorry and, and, and so um, just run to, to the cross, run to Christ, these truths that are so precious to us. And, and yet, Lord, to learn to, to want to allow you to inform my affections, uh, uh, to, to 
rework my orientation away from my own self-centered realities and into your, your joyful, wise, holy, loving ones. So Lord, we thank you for these things. We pray you'd help us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, we're just going to stand. We're not going to sing or anything because Pastor Mike said, uh, uh, can you, you got something there, Lynn, you could play? All right. So when the organ plays, you are free to go. Lord bless you.